What is a diaphragm pacing system, and which patients can benefit most by having one? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining us to discuss uses for a diaphragm pacing system beyond ALS is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine in Cleveland, Ohio. He's also Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. Dr. Anders, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you for having me here today. Tell us about the diaphragm pacing system and how it helps ALS patients regulate their breathing. Uh, what we found in our initial pilot trial, and we've just completed a large multi-center trial throughout the United States, that it allows us to maintain diaphragm strength. It allows us to maintain the good type 1 muscle fibers that we need in patients with ALS. We've actually changed the way that patients are dying from uh, this need for a ventilator to having, unfortunately with ALS, they're still losing all of their other motor neurons. They're still unable to move and eventually can't communicate. We've changed kind of the usual way of death from respiratory failure to when they choose to die because they can no longer communicate or they've developed other problems from ALS. And explain the mechanics of what the DPS does for these patients. Why does it help ALS patients? In ALS patients, as in our other groups of patients, we're implanting electrodes directly on the diaphragm. The diaphragm is a, is a very interesting muscle with a, one of the key New England Journal articles that just came out in March of this past year that showed that just one night on a ventilator, you'll lose 50% of your type 1 muscle fiber. As we sit here talking, about 70% of my diaphragm is type 1, slow-twitch muscle fiber that can fire you know, every minute minute of every day without tiring out. What occurs is that the diaphragm will atrophy very rapidly from disuse with 50% of the muscle mass lost within one day of being on a ventilator. What we found in ALS patients is that, one, they've lost some central control of their diaphragm. They have a type of central sleep apnea. So at night when they're on their usual therapy of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, their diaphragm muscle is not firing at all. And therefore, that diaphragm is getting a little bit weaker from disuse. We also found that there's a much higher proportion of type 2B muscle fiber in ALS patients, and we can convert that to type 1. So those are kind of some of the basic effects we've seen in our ALS patients, especially those with more of the upper motor neuron involvement of ALS. So the ALS patients are a new cohort that you're trying this on. Tell us about the other types of patients that use DPS. Well, our initial research was into spinal cord injured patients. Obviously, if you have that catastrophic C2 injury where you become a quadriplegic ventilator dependent, it changes your life completely. A 40-year-old that becomes a ventilator dependent quadriplegic has a life expectancy of only seven years if they're on a ventilator. That's a significant change in life expectancy. If you're one of those few that actually could still breathe the exact same injury, your life expectancy is 20 years. Still not great for a 40-year-old, but as we all know, when you're on a ventilator, you have a high incidence of pneumonias. Ventilators just ventilate the anterior lobes, and you get this chronic posterior lobe collapse. You have chronic positive pressure barotrauma on your lungs, so that significantly affects their survival. So our initial research group was on those patients. Interestingly, Christopher Reeve was our second successful patient, the first one on our first try. Our first patient, we uh, had to do a second time to get it to work as we had changes in how we looked at things. Um, And he said even before the surgery, you know, what do I have to lose? It's a simple laparoscopic procedure. I'm a quadriplegic. If I can get off the ventilator, it's a huge change in my lifestyle. We subsequently did a 50-patient multi-center trial and got FDA approval as a monitoring device in June of this past year. And what we showed on those 50 patients is that we got all of them off the ventilator except our second patient, which changes their quality of life significantly. And that really was our initial group that led to our ALS group. And really the data from those 
those two groups have shown us that we may be able to help just anybody on a ventilator with this percutaneous system. How long does the surgery take and what's involved in it? Well, the surgery takes a little over an hour. It's about the same technical difficulty as a gallbladder operation, which is done over 500,000 times in the United States. It's a laparoscopic procedure, so we put a TV camera in by the belly button. Probably the key technical detail of this operation, which was developed, is that we can't just randomly put the electrodes in the diaphragm. We have to map the diaphragm. So we use, and they had developed this suction cup electrode where we move it around on the diaphragm, stimulate the diaphragm, and we can measure change in abdominal pressure. So the higher the pressure increase, the stronger the diaphragm contraction. You can also visualize it, so there's both a quantitative look at the diaphragm and a qualitative look at how the diaphragm is contracting. Once we identify the best spot for implantation, we put an electrode in there. We uh, put two electrodes in each diaphragm. Initially, because I thought one electrode might break, uh, fortunately, our graduate student that developed this electrode, Peterson, we named it the Peterson electrode after him. This electrode is never broken in a patient. It's a great little electrode. And we subsequently developed a way, because for each electrode, I can stimulate them with different settings so that I can try to maximize the contraction and get the best breath by setting each electrode separately. And then I kind of feel like an ophthalmologist saying, do you like number one or number two better with how they breathe as opposed to how we see things? And does breathing for those patients 24 hours a day have any impact on the diaphragm or the other muscles of the area? It's very interesting because some of the older literature for ALS said is that over-exercising could make it worse. We're obviously exercising the diaphragm, stimulating it 24 hours a day. From an evolutionary standpoint, the diaphragm is made to be utilized every minute of every day. And so really stimulated every minute of every day is just like our own natural breathing. It does not cause any problem. As that New England Journal article showed that just not moving your diaphragm for just one night causes a change in the muscle composition. It converts to type 2B muscle fiber faster than any other muscle. It atrophies faster than every other muscle. It needs to move every minute of every day. You should never rest the diaphragm. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Bloom, and joining me to discuss uses for a diaphragm pacing system beyond ALS is Dr. Raymond Anders, Associate Professor of Surgery at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgery at University Hospital's Case Medical Center. So where else in the world is this being used and for what indications? Um, it has complete European approval for spinal cord injury and for ALS and any neuromuscular disease. So we've actually, implants have been done in Paris at uh, Sapetiere Hospital and Charity Hospital in Berlin and Barcelona and Iceland, and we have numerous other sites starting in Europe. Again, interesting is I've been involved with this research for over a decade now that we've doubled the amount of patients being implanted every six months. In the United States, we just got approval for spinal cord injury indication, and presently we're just in the waiting pattern with the FDA for our ALS applications. Uh, we've completed our, our long-term multi-center trial, and we're just looking and waiting for the final analysis of the data before we apply for FDA approval for ALS in the United States. In our future applications, we're really looking at just anybody on a ventilator. Utilizing our data from spinal cord injury and ALS, it looks like we may help any patient that's on a ventilator. As we've recently learned in the United States is that hospitals won't get paid if a patient develops a ventilator-associated pneumonia. Why do people get pneumonia on a ventilator? The ventilators only cause expansion of the anterior lobe, so you get the chronic posterior lobe collapse. We've shown already that by stimulating the diaphragm in conjunction with a ventilator, at the same time, we cause the air to go to the posterior lobe, and therefore, we don't get that posterior lobe collapse. So we also have a, a temporary type of diaphragm pacing system where we just would utilize it at the same time they're on a ventilator, 
to maintain type 1 muscle fibers, help maintain posterior lobe ventilation, and hopefully decrease ventilator-associated pneumonia. What other kinds of physicians do you need to work with to make sure that a patient's eligible for this? Are you working with the neurologists and others that are treating the patient? Absolutely. I mean, this has been a team aspect since our initial aspect. We've had critical care nurses, our pulmonologists here, our neurologists here. And really for ALS patients, you know, it's interesting. I'm a general surgeon, and I treat a lot of ALS patients as my research has taken me in that area. But the first thing I tell any ALS patient is the most important thing is they get yourself a good neurologist. They'll take care of all aspects of your ALS. They're the ones specialized in this. So I really, you know, even in my own practice here, I don't even see a patient for consideration of this until the neurologist has helped manage all of their other conditions that they'll have with ALS. ALS is a terrible disease, and they need to have a good neurologist to help take care of all those other aspects. That will actually help their quality of life. And then once they've kind of stabilized from that aspect, then we can try to do something to help them even, even further. And what date are you hoping to get approval from the FDA for its use in ALS? I think that would be a whole other segment is uh, the role of the FDA in trials. I think, uh, as we all know, the FDA is overworked. There's no doubt that uh, presently we don't have enough manpower at the FDA. There's one aspect that the government has called humanitarian use designation, and that's what we utilize for our spinal cord injured patients. But that still is a very slow process with the FDA. And presently, we're in negotiations with the FDA to try to offer this for patients with ALS. Unfortunately, we think it'll probably be a good six months before anybody in the United States, any further ALS patients will be offered this. Obviously, we have full approval in Europe, and our data looks good, but it's just it's a slow process, which is appropriate. I mean, the FDA has a lot of work to do, and we need to support them in that work. But if, if you're an ALS patient, obviously having to wait for approval is the difference between living and dying. Could you go outside the United States if you were an ALS patient and get this done? Presently, we, you know, we have approval in Europe. It's one of these interesting aspects, though, is that... Um, it's difficult to travel with ALS. Now, you know, this is a common question ALS patients ask me. And if you're fairly far along on your disease course, just traveling on an airplane and, and all the other aspects may be enough to push you over the edge. I think there's a lot of risks with doing that. I think it's um, the, the medical tourism industry is a difficult industry because officially if they're implanted somewhere else is that they can't get product support here in the United States. So I think it's a difficult aspect. I hope that they're working closely with our government agencies that will be able to offer this for ALS patients in the United States. Tell us about its use in critical care patients who don't have ALS. How would you be using this and why? Well, it's interesting. Obviously, we've, we've been looking at this very carefully. Now, there's a whole new avenue of surgery that is called note surgery, which my whole other research aspect is this other minimally invasive surgery. You may have heard of natural orifice transluminal endoscopic surgery, where we can actually now take out gallbladders through a patient's mouth or a female patient's vagina with no abdominal incisions. We actually developed a way to actually put this diaphragm pacing system in just at the same time as our percutaneous endoscopic tube or a peg. Interestingly, I'm at the same hospital where the PEG was initially developed. Jeff Ponsky is my chairman. And so uh, we have a very long experience with these aspects for helping patients in the ICU. And so we believe that at the patient's bedside in the ICU, we could actually implant the diaphragm pacing system at the same time as our feeding tube. The data looks very promising that by maintaining diaphragm strength, we can help patients get off the ventilator. 40 to 50% of your time after your initial injury is just re-strengthening the diaphragm. By electrically stimulating it earlier, we'll maintain that strength decrease that posterior lobe collapse that can lead to pneumonia, and hopefully uh, improve the quality and survival benefits in the ICU. Is your group looking at using electrical stimulation in any other area of the body? 
Western Reserve, where I'm actually on faculty at, has a functional electrostimulation area. Over the years, they've had a system for spinal cord injury to move their hand for quadriplegic. We have walking systems that are being developed. It's kind of, you know, as we all would like to cure spinal cord injury and get that spinal cord to regenerate or kind of get past the bruise and the electrical problems, we can now learn then planting enough electrodes to get the body to move. It's never as good as it was initially. So we have a group working on a freehand system where you can move the arm, a walking system for patients, a standing system. As we like to say is that we believe we can put an electrode just in any muscle that will help a patient. The diaphragm is a very interesting one because if the diaphragm contracts, you breathe. Any other muscle, like your hand muscles, are so complicated to grasp, to move that 360. It's a lot harder to control. It's much more difficult, but they're doing a lot of positive work in that area. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Raymond Anders. We've been discussing uses for a diaphragm pacing system for patients beyond ALS. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM 157, the channel for medical professionals. For a complete program guide and podcast, visit www.reachmd.com. For comments and questions, call us toll-free at 888-MD-XM-157. And thank you for listening.